Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Time Studios on another beautiful day in Florida, 29th of November, 2022. I am honored to be joined in the studio today by Jim Hawes, who has an illustrious career going back to uh, initial Navy SEAL work uh, in the Congo uh, with the CIA, which he wrote about in a fantastic book, which easily enough is called Cold War Navy SEAL, My Story of Che Guevara, War in the Congo and the Communist Threat in Africa. We're going to touch on briefly. Uh, and after that, has had an interesting career in kind of private equity venture capital in emerging markets. So if I got that right, welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let's let's dive right in. I think a lot of the folks who listen to this show, uh, you know, are do a lot of private sector work, but a lot of all folks also call in or listen in because of uh, a lot of the veterans work that I highlight for Combat Control Foundation and and uh, mm -hmm. Rangers and that kind of thing. So maybe since the book came out just a little while ago, you could give us a little color on um, what I perceive to be an enormously fun time in the Congo. Well, it's, um, yeah, it was. And it was only uh, only the uh, the CIA could do something like that. The Department of Defense just, just couldn't do it. They can't do anything small. And uh, they can't do anything without uh, uh, procedures and, and systems, et cetera. Uh, whereas, uh, and this was a place with no technology, no communication, so no systems, no nothing. And it was, uh, the marching order was, there's a problem, you got a problem, I'll back you the best way I can, but uh, you got to solve it. So good luck. That was the mark, basically the marching orders. And, and my boss was terrific and he did everything he possibly could. But when you're almost 2000 miles away across the jungle, mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty hard to, it's, it's pretty hard to get very much involved. <laughs> and so, uh, what, what were the years of what, what was the mission? Is, is fighting the Simba rebels this was, in Congo? This and... was 60, uh, mid 65 to uh, early 66. And it was triggered by the, I think, uh, even still up to this day, the largest massacre of, of American hostages uh, in history. And this was in, in Stanleyville mm. uh, in uh, Northeast Congo. And uh, the this was, if you went back far enough, you could see, I think it was in Time, uh, uh, on the cover of, uh, of Time back in 64, a missionary's... Uh, being uh, brutally uh, executed by uh, by the Simba rebels, and it was decided something had to be done, uh, and uh, so the the British the uh, the Belgians parachuted in, and um, brought in by uh, U.S. Air Force planes, uh, but and that got a lot of publicity. But what wasn't didn't get much publicity was the fact that the agency had a had a, 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 a small troop of Cubans led by an American named Rip Robertson, hmm. who went in to uh, rescue the uh, rescue the hostages before they could be slaughtered by the by the Simba rebels, and it was that event which triggered my operation, and that was. Um, as a result of the all the weapons and supplies and so forth were coming across Lake Tanganyika from the port of Kagoma in Tanganyika. And uh, so something had to be done to interdict all of supplies and so forth. Hmm. And also at this time, remember, nobody knew where Che Guevara was. He had disappeared. And the only thing they knew for sure is wherever he was, there was going to be trouble. Um, so I went I was sent in to uh, form a Navy on Lake Tanganyika to train the, pe train the people and uh, execute uh, an interdiction operation to prevent the weapons and supplies from coming across the lake to the various uh, rebel camps along the eastern shore of the Congo. Hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, and so that we, and we had uh, no communication except uh, we still had some one-time pad communication, dot, 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 and that was it. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I went in and there was, um, and I had a terrific boss uh, and, uh, named Bill Hamilton, who's head of the Maritime Division and Special Operations Division at the agency, and his deputy, Tom Kleins. 
They were terrific, imaginative, creative, capable, experienced guys. So <clears throat> we brought in, we had to have the, had the biggest, fastest boats on the lake. And we brought in two Swifts. And one of the reasons that I got this assignment, because I was one of only two officers in Vietnam who had had Swift experience. Ah, uh, so this is automatically well, a very important characteristic of what they're looking right, for to build this little right. mini Navy. Yeah. So they, uh, and of course, uh, we, I thought that, and so we, uh, to get the boats there clandestinely, we actually went to Morgan City where they were built. I got the original builders to uh, to cut the boats, fillet the boats, basically cut off. And the, that's Morgan off, City, off. Louisiana, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The Cajuns, man, they're terrific guys. Wow. <laughs> anyway, um, so we cut off the bow, cut off the superstructure, cut it in half longitudinally, put all the engines and spares and all these pieces into seed one twenty four Globemasters. <laughs> and flew them into the middle of the Congo. And there was a narrow gauge railroad that ran beside the airstrip that we landed at. Uh, with an, and so we could put the put the pieces on the uh, on the uh, railway, take it to the what was the, the maiden port on Lake Tanganyika there in Albertville. Today, today it's called Cassini. And um, we brought in the uh, Cajuns, black. Uh, to reassemble the boats, um, volunteers, they didn't have to do it, just doing their bit for the country. Mm. And um, so uh, got them put, uh, stitched back together in record time and put on the lake. And that meant we had the fastest, most lethal Cape Gully on the lake. I also commandeered a couple of lake vessels to act, a lake vessel to act as a mother ship which we armed with captured Russian weapons from the rebels. And um, then we had five, what you would think of as Boston whalers. Right. That we had a 30 caliber machine gun on the forward and a shoulder fired um, 3.5 inch bazookas from the stern. And those were, uh, directed by the mothership uh, who would detect the targets on the radars and communicate by line of sight mm. radios to the to the same so we had we had uh, quite a quite a navy for the lake and at the time we <laughs> i didn't at the time we were doing this i didn't realize but the the inspiration for the movie the african queen was the British doing something quite similar and actually very close to where we were in Albert right. during <laughs> World War One when they wanted to take the German Navy off of Lake Tanganyika? Yep. It's quite a start. It's quite a that's a great book to read. It's called Mimi and Tutu. Mm -hmm. Um anyway, so then we brought in uh then uh they brought in a team of Cubans. Um uh, again black the good Cubans, uh, not the commies. Yeah, the good humans. Boy, and were they good. Um, and uh, they had, they were just determined anti-communists and had had a lot of experience and were willing to go anywhere and do anything as long as it was against against the communists. And they had enormous trust in this deputy uh, branch chief, Tom Kleins, uh, and to the point, yeah, it was just an incredible amount of uh, trust. And uh, I remember my last instructions from Tom when he brought them out was these guys are loyal, capable, competent. They won't give you any trouble. They're brave. <clears throat> we got a great trust relation with trust relationship. Don't F it up. And he got on his, <laughs> See, he got on his, clear got on the his, big direction. <laughs> got on his plane and disappeared. And uh, so, yeah, they, so they were terrific. So we started the interdiction patrol with those guys. And at the same time, uh, I re started recruiting um, mercenaries from the 5th Commando, which was already in place. They were ground guys, but they didn't know bow from stern, nothing. And I did, we had to train them to be sailors. so they These could were a lot of former Rhodesian, South Africans, right. Kenyans, yeah. who were like wondering right. about the fall of empire and what next. Exactly. And uh, 
Uh, and of course, the State Department was anxious to get the Cubans out because they didn't want the world to know we had our own, our own Cubans uh, uh, at the tip of the spear. And uh, so we went, went right to work and had a, you know, an immediate impact because they had been, uh, they had been operating on the lake without any, without any uh, deterrence whatsoever. Uh, and it was on some one of those proposals that the 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 the, uh, the sound effect on the lakes and at night and so forth, you know, yep. radio signals do funny things, and the in our in our Cubans detected Cuban speakers, and everybody suspected there were Cubans there. No one suspected Che was there. Mm. Uh, and uh, so it was soon after that that the the, the the mercenaries were uh, uh, raided a camp and found the documentation, which actually proved that Che Guevara was in the country. Right. And um, so needless to say, that was uh, even extra an incentive <laughs> on yeah. our guys. I would love it if we could take a quick break here because, and we discussed this very briefly before, mm -hmm. I would love it if you would give a rational kind of summary of the colossal evil that Che Guevara was, because we had the Hollywood types. You know, Robert Redford made a damn movie about this prick, The Motorcycle Diaries. I mean, he was an evil, murdering psychopath, and somehow it's okay that American college kids walk around with this picture on their T-shirt. I mean, I'd love it if you just give a bit of color from that that contemporaneous time. Well, he just had no. Uh, he had well, starting the guy. The guy who was my predecessor in the Congo. Did a hell of a job. Um, had um, had set up a, a a business in Cuba uh, related to salvage work and so forth. And um, this was right at the time of the of the Castro taking over, and and and, uh, and uh, Che was the Minister of uh, Commerce, our industry. Something ridiculous for which he yeah, has zero and, qualifications. Uh, so yeah, right away he uh, he started putting a clamp down on everybody, including uh, my predecessor. Uh, so in, in fact, forcing him to leave. And so it was, uh, and you know he I mean, he was just a, he was a murderer. He loved to kill. He would go into the prison and kill people. Uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't out out in the in the, in the mountains as the romantic view of of uh, of Che is portrayed. Uh, he was you know, these were captives. These were incarcerated people, and we'd go and kill them. Yeah. Um, he uh, he had no concern for building anything. He was a pure romantic revolutionary. He just wanted to kill. And uh, anyone who thinks otherwise is not. And that myth was promulgated doing, by the New York Times. Anything. They loved him. They spent 20 years yeah. talking about how great this guy was. Oh, well, they loved Chairman Mao and Castro, too. They were very angry farmers, remember? So, uh, <laughs> so at least they're consistent in the common Perfectly, consistent. Fair perfectly consistent. That's exactly right. But, okay, back to Che in the Congo. Sorry to interrupt. I, yeah, I, anyway, I, do, so I try to drive that home for people who just don't get German here, But the, the good thing about this, everything that I say, Che... Uh, corroborates in his own book called uh, uh, The African Dream. Uh, it was Che's diary, and it starts out, this is a story of a failure, because it was. Right. And he gives much credit to what we did in terms of keeping him from getting food, weapons, medicines, everything he needed to sustain himself. And because he was such a fool, <clears throat> he had totally... Uh, misassessed the Simbas thinking that he was going to come in there and going to enhance their revolutionary fervor. Mm. And the only thing that they were interested in was rape, pillage, and, and plunder. And, uh, and and his own his guys finally finally his guys said, Che, we'll stay here with you, but we're all going to die here. So yeah. finally he then decided to make his exit. And then in the book is how we we should have got him in November 25th, 1965, but describes how how the only the only way we could have missed him was, was described in the book. 
but the good news is he went to Bolivia. Yeah. And there he got there he got he his took care of him there. Rewards, yeah. So yeah. But he had a terrible man. No. no, awful. Great, great book. I'll tell everyone to read it. We'll put a link below. I found yeah. it, I found mm -hmm. it uh, very, very interesting, especially yeah. knowing how, you know, having spent a lot of time with um, Cubans who had dealt with Che, their, lo their loathing for him is, oh, yes, is, is beyond. Right. I mean, one guy writes yeah. about he was, um, you know, in Miami with his wife, and now his, his mother, his wife's parents had been murdered by Che yeah. personally in, in that prison, right? Yeah. In, in Havana. Uh, and he and his family had been, you know, ruined and all this. And along comes Carlos Santana, who's a wonderful musician, but a complete stoned idiot, who's mm -hmm. wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt. And his wife yeah. is spluttering in rage and yells at him in Spanish. How dare you wear the face of the man that murdered my mother on your shirt? And and uh, Carlos is like, hey, man, Che was about peace and love. And he's like, I had to hold my wife back. She's going to beat this rock star to death. He's such an idiot. Yeah, well, he deserved it. Um, Unbelievable. But, so, yeah. so we we'll, we we'll, I will not ruin it. People can go through the history and read the book. It's really great. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it, later on, a lot of your career was. Um, how, sorry, how much longer were you in kind of military public service before you kind of migrated out into the private sector? Were you was a lot more time after the, the uh, Congo, or or? Well, a little bit more time, but uh, you know, as a as a, as a contractor. I waited till everything was declassified. I kept the code waited till everything was declassified to write right. the story. What happened after that, I I just don't feel comfortable oh, fair enough, talking, fair enough. talking about. But it wasn't very long. Right. And uh, uh, I went to went to business school and went back to Asia for for the next thirty five years. And that's I mean that's a fascinating period of, yeah. of, of development. I mean the, the, mm -hmm. the Singapore and all the rest of these countries, they exploded. While you were there, what was that like? Did you, did you... Oh, I tell you, for me, it was like throwing a mad dog into a meat house. I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah. It was before the bank. I was account number three in Jakarta, Indonesia, when Citibank opened. I mean, that's great. So I was there before the, I was there before the, uh, for the banks and for the American lawyers. Yeah, it was wonderful. And uh, it, what I loved about it is uh, the only place that you could get, recourse to honest adjudication in, in anywhere in Southeast Asia was Hong Kong and Singapore. Ah, Everywhere else, it was reputation, 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 right. which I love. That shortcut a lot of things. And, you know, in America, we say, oh, you better get, better get a tight agreement with that guy's that'll watch that guy. Right. In Southeast Asia, that was a kiss of death. If you, you know, if you, if you, if you didn't have a reputation, you didn't have much to do at least not with the right kind of people sure uh and so i i really loved that i thrived in that and um i was in i was in singapore when they had independence so i got to see it from the absolute that must have been amazing what was that like was that was that transition period i mean how long did it take oh they weren't they weren't they were in terrible shape yeah the british had pulled out all their military presence in singapore so they didn't have that to contribute to the economy um the only thing they had was the port and right. they, had, they really not a lot of experience in operating that it was operated by you know foreigners yeah uh so it was really on the bottom and Lee, but lee kuan yu was incorruptible he was smart as could be and he had a team just like him of trusted right. people just like him because you know at the time he was uh he was considered a real socialist the american government didn't like were didn't really like lee kuan yu very much and um uh but he had a vision and he he understood he understood how to capture the entrepreneurial spirit of the overseas chinese mm. and he then had to create a, a system that would that would not tolerate corruption and then start building the start building the country and he started like all these guys he started out with garment <laughs> making garments and all the plastic and, toys and so on yeah, up the chain and then he's sending his top students to uh, to the UK and the USA for education and bringing them back they all had to serve uh, on the uh, in the military for a period uh, I mean he really he really created a meritocracy yeah and uh, and that was it it was a meritocracy it wasn't any of this touchy-feely 
nonsense. That's really brilliant. But he, you've but, seen that. But what made the but what just so what made the meritocracy work was he gave everybody a, an equal chance at a good education. Right. And the ones who the ones who who were outstanding got treated accordingly. The other other people weren't ignored, but they just it was a meritocracy, and that's how he built it. That's how he built the uh, the economy and the country. That's really smart. I I didn't mean you foreshadowed exactly what I was about to ask. Right. Mm -hmm. In in some senses, big big fan of free market uh, economics as long as people are honest. I'd rather have honest, non corruptible rule of law socialism at the top than highly corruptible influence peddling capitalism. Because at least at least you know the rules are you can follow them, but in a corrupt society you can't. There are no rules. There's just a handout all the time. Well, that, he, that was his and the other thing that he did very quickly was he created the ability for everyone to own a, a, a place to live. Mm. Now, these were not nice places, they but they were better than the campongs or the, you know, the village huts. Right. They were living in and they were high rise. And uh, but it but by giving everybody ownership in their residence, uh, he gave everybody a stake in the success of the country. That was one of the brilliant strokes. I never read anybody talk about that, but boy, that was something. Right. And then, and then, how he had to design these high rises uh, so that culturally they were acceptable because they were used to be in villages and and, and and everybody was in and out of everybody's place and so forth. And he had to design these structures, which were not. By the way, they, as I said, they were not primitive is not the right word, but there's certainly, there aren't any of them left, put it that way. Like, as, a, co- like a college dormitory. Hmm? <laughs> like a college dormitory. Acceptable, yeah. but you wouldn't yeah. want to live there more than two years. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and then, of course, over the years, as, uh, as it was all redeveloped and, and made much better and so forth. But the key, to, the, the, he, had to, he had to stabilize the country in a hurry. And that was one of the brilliant ways that he did it. And then he hmm. figured out ways to get employment he had cut down corruption so people would believe. I remember what a big deal it was the first time. It used to be a kind of a joke that every year there would be an expatriate who would be made an example of. <laughs> exactly. Badly. What, what a tradition it was the first year that there was a Chinese made an example of. Because right. it just indicated the mature, yeah, how this how the how the society was maturing. Mm. And uh it, 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 so that was uh, it was fascinating to see all that go. Boy, I, I went down there from Hong Kong once um, to say that uh, to meet with them because I wanted to do a marina. Mm. I wanted to develop a marina. And I remember going into the planning people and saying that and the guy looked at me and said, oh, Singapore will never be able to afford to have a marina. That's priceless. <laughs> so look what they've got now. Yeah. That's really funny. Yeah, now they got a marina yeah. for six hundred foot yachts. Yeah. That's yeah. priceless. Yeah. That that's really interesting. Hernando de Soto was um, a professor in Peru, who actually mm-hmm. he's the only academic that ever brought down a communist insurgency. So Sendero Luminoso was, of course, trying to take over the country, and they mm-hmm. had a great story to tell. But he fought it, and in the book he wrote about it was the mystery of capital. Where mm-hmm. most entrepreneurs, they get their first equity loan from their home. So right. if you don't have a home, you yep. you 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 stymie the growth of of, of yep. so you and he he referred to that policy in Singapore as that stroke of genius. Yeah, that you yep. automatically give people equity, but yep. not in a handout kind of way. But like you, well, okay, you know. live in this house now; it's yours. And everybody had to save a certain amount of money. Yeah, from the check I mean, the, the provident fund. Right. So that everyone had a retirement capability, and it was sacrosanct. You could you could touch it, and I, I think the government met uh, a portion of it as, as well. And uh, so, and that created capital. Yep. Uh, so, and he was the, he made the banks behave. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was remarkable. That's I, got, fabulous. You know, I got I, I got the privilege of knowing a lot of those original guys around him. It was uh, they were remarkable, remarkable. And what were the other kind of? They all had a different trajectory. A lot of those Asian Asian nations were there. Others um, that you that you think also did a really really good job, or some that maybe kind of made suboptimal starting conditions that didn't work out so well. Well, no, no, no of course nobody 
comes even near uh, Indonesia. I mean, uh, uh, Singapore. Uh, spent a lot of time in Indonesia. Mm. I did a number of firsts there. First office park. Uh, uh, I had a uh, uh, offshore uh, boat uh, boat, you know, servicing. Uh, offshore, when you, offshore industry started there in 1968. Right. And uh, it's all offshore, so I had to create everything to support it. And uh, so I had a, a company that did uh, um, you know, barges, work boats, crew boats, work barges, accommodation barges, you name it. Right. Most people don't uh, think about that. If you've got an offshore oil industry, you've got services of yeah. getting just basically getting people to and fro the yeah. platform in yeah. and of itself as a business. Yeah. Well, right? They didn't have any of that. So it all, yeah. had, to be, all had to be created. But the, the interesting thing about Indonesia, as you know, they had an attempted communist coup there in 1965. And Indonesia, because of its strategic location, the size of the population was a, was a real competitive target in the, in the right. Country. If you turn that red, that's a huge, huge block. Everybody wanted. It was there that it was there, it was in Indonesia that they finally established that the international communist uh, conspiracy was not. Uh, uniform and united. In fact, that the Russia and China had their own flavors. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so it, if and so and so everybody was after Indonesia, and uh, the uh, they the, the communists would have had it if they had done nothing. Hmm. But they, but the because it, it was just going their way, and Indonesians, you know, they. They would sort of back up and accommodate and blah, blah, blah. And also in those days, they were worried about, you know, getting rice on the table and and so forth. So they- The communists promised rice. Oh yeah. So it, it was all going their way, but then they, but then the the, the Chinese wing of the communist party uh, became victims of their own dogma and they had to have the bloody overthrow. Right. They attempted the bloody overthrow throw and they blew it. Mm. So the blowback against them because they also messed around with people with people's religions and so forth, like in Bali, you know, when they messed around with religion, they Balinese are the most gentle, lovely people in the world. But it's not a good idea to mess with their religion. Right. And that was uh, the end of that. Oh yeah. So they they, they killed killed enormous number of of uh, communists, and I'm sure there were creditors and uh, others in, in in that as well. But it's interesting to see how academia is treating that historically you know they're making it sound like uh well none of the historians were there <laughs> well, they usually <laughs> aren't because it's too dangerous yeah, yeah so <laughs> they don't they don't understand what was going on in the time the atmosphere the right. fear etc cetera, etc cetera. and then when they they slaughtered these five generals uh and missed a couple of key ones uh then the backlash was was huge huge uh and of course there were innocent victims as there always would be in something like that um, but to say that it was provoked or deliberate and so forth is absolute nonsense. Hmm. And uh, anyway, so um, so at the it, after that coup was over, and uh, Sukarno was clearly implicated in the coup. He was going along with it because he, you know, he wanted to be big cheese. He thought he got a shot. Exactly right. And so it, it became very difficult for how you know he was the George. He was considered the George Washington of Indonesia. So, uh, you know, you don't want to just destroy the image completely of George Washington. So the way Suharto managed that transition was quite extraordinary. I got to see that, you know, up close. Hmm. And uh, one of the things that the U.S. government did that was really smart, we had a hell of an ambassador in Indonesia at the time named Marshall Green. Very experienced, very smart, and and, and understood when to keep his hands off and um so that but we did two really significant two things as far as i'm concerned stabilized indonesia and allowed it to slowly make its way to where it is now where once again it's investment grade uh for for now people have have short (laughs) memories right and uh, especially the financial community anyway um so um uh, we we 
we brought in truck uh, shiploads of, of, of rice from mm. PL4E program, which stabilized the price of rice. Because mm. remember that day, the economy ran on three things. One was the price of rice, one was the price of kerosene, and one was, I can't remember the other one, an elementary, a fundamental to the- Cooking to, oil or something? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right, cooking oil, thank you. Yeah. So we brought in shiploads of that stuff, which basically would stabilize the price of rice. I mean, I, I stood on a balcony of the Hotel Indonesia and watched them killing Chinese Oof. just out of frustration, right, right. down there at the, at the traffic circle. Uh, that's that was the status of them because they always blamed the Chinese if there was anything, and the Chinese only made three percent, made up three percent of the population, mm. but they controlled ninety five percent of the capital. Right. So anything that that's went a wrong, bad mismatch. <laughs> yeah. So anything went wrong, we blamed the Chinese, and, and uh, <clears throat> so what this did was it stabilized price rise, it stopped the, the killing of the Chinese, and it gave uh, it gave Suharto a chance to you know to to get control and start doing some of the things that needed to be done and in those and in like all these like uh like uh mobutu whatever in those days he was a good guy doing the right things for the right reasons hmm. and of course too long in power and you know you begin to get itchy yeah. there seems to be a time period beyond which even the most reasonable benevolent ruler turns into a nutcase <laughs> it seems to be like seven to nine years is yeah, a maximum I tenure. <laughs> I think that's right. They got to get, you know, got to get rid of them. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, and, and, and Lee Kuan Yew was an exception, but he was even more of an exception when she voluntarily stepped down. Yeah. Because he had created a system and he, had, he, he knew he had to, at some point, make the system work. And it has. So, the, the funny, the worst counterpoint to that I, I saw, because I was in South Africa five Four or five weeks after the fall of the apartheid government, so it was there for the government of national unity uh, when when Mandela was president, and he was hale and hearty. He was older. He was the president. Mm -hmm. yeah. First year, first four year term, and he made the decision to step down because he didn't want to die in office. He didn't right. want this African president for life crap, right? To yeah. continue, ha right. I'm convinced. Had he known that he had another eight or nine years in him, I, I think he would have run for a second term. Mm -hmm. But that's it was fascinating because he made that decision so he wouldn't yeah. die in office. Yeah. And it's been suboptimal ever since. You, you play what if with history all day long, but him stepping Yeah, I wish he had. If he had stayed one more turn, it might have made a difference because, boy. Stabo Mbeki was a nightmare. Yeah. A nightmare. Spoiled yeah. brat child of the commie elite. And yeah. from there, it's been downhill. But anyway, yeah. so yeah. that's great. And so, so what were the... What were the sort of biggest highlights you saw while you all that time in Asia? It was were the big sort of business wins that you saw, both for yourself and others. Sort of kind of massive core infrastructure stuff, like as you say, ports and roads, or was it really diversified? Could it be you know a food business or what? What, what did you see there? Um. One thing that one thing that we that I did good. I mean, among the you know, I've been up and down like a yo-yo. Uh, one of the good one of the good things that I got involved in was um, when I finished business school, I was broke and I had this extraordinary opportunity with an extraordinary individual to go to Hong Kong and build a build a uh, build a thousand room hotel on top of a two hundred thousand square foot shopping mall hmm. while the while the while the Cultural revolution was still ongoing. I mean, it was winding down, but it was still ongoing. Right. So all the locals were looking for the exit still, and here come these crazy Americans, and they do the biggest project in their area to do the biggest project in in Hong Kong, hmm. and uh, with the deepest hole in the ground, you know, uh, the uh, the uh, no financing in place handshake with the old British company to get the construction started. I mean, this is old, this is old style Hong Kong, which was for an entrepreneur is like dying to go into heaven. Heaven, right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so this guy's, this guy was an extraordinary individual and he decided that, that I was uh, worth his effort and trust. And so with two weeks of real estate experience, I went to Hong Kong. He took me out and said, this is Jim Oz. He speaks for me. He got on the plane and 
came home. That's great. Right. <laughs> so, That's fabulous. So I had to, I, I, I had to figure it out. Well, you know, Congo was Congo was pretty good experience for that. Yeah. You know, I had kind to of a cake figure it out. Congo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so that. Uh, that was an extraordinary, that, that was good because like all real estate deals, it's the market determines your genius. And we caught that, exactly. that we caught that market just, just right coming out of the culture revolution, shopping mall released at the highest rents per square foot in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, they became the most profitable Sheraton in the world very quickly because nobody understood, including the, the, guy, the guy who put it all together and had the vision the guy who hired me understood what was going on in the new territories. Mm. So what they thought was going to be lower paying tourist traffic was higher, higher paying business traffic. Right. Anyway, so that turned out to be a great mistake. And I didn't have enough sense to stay in Hong Kong where I just run the most glamorous project in Hong Kong, right. successful, et cetera. So I, and my deal with him was that he had given me a stake after, after, after Hong Kong. So I went back to Indonesia and did uh, and did this first office park, which mm. which was turned out to be a great success. So I had to right out of business school. I had these two big successes, and then I decided, and I started thinking I was a real businessman. Of course, you had two <laughs> two great wins in a row instead of just going retiring fishing yeah. forever. You're like, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> which then I started learning some hard lessons. But one the, another one of the good things we did while we were in Hong Kong, we formed this what was going to be the first venture fund in Asia. Hmm. called inter-asia venture management inter-asia management and uh there were seven of us and um two uh let's see four four chinese and, and three guilos and uh guilo being the chinese pejorative term for, yes. for, for, what, for my, okay, for my Western, japanese guess uh, that's gaijin <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I went back to Indonesia and did this, did this office part, did some other uh, good things in Indonesia. But anyway, in the meantime, we had formed what we call this venture fund, and basically the fund was, was <laughs> it's, it's laughable in today's terms. It was two million dollars, which basically we got from passing the hat from people right. who who trusted us. And with that, we did the first McDonald's in Asia. And that's a hell of a story, which we all take credit for, but none of us deserve as much as we, we, uh, we, we, we try to take. <laughs> um, we got it because the father of one of these Chinese guys knew Ray Kroc really well. Mm -hmm. And we made the pitch to Ray Kroc and McDonald's headquarters said, oh, no, this will never work. We can't do this. Chinese will never eat hamburgers. They got all these you know, other Chinese things that they'll eat. They'll never eat hamburgers. Hmm. And of course, they were wrong. Ray Kroc said, uh, we're going to do this and we're going to do it with these guys. And it was the first and I think an only partnership they were done with the venture fund hmm. as well. That's cool. Uh, so they were 50%. We were 25%. And, and one of our guys who rolled out, Chinese guy who rolled out to be the, the boss of the operation, um, owned 25%. And okay. the, 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 the real credit goes to that guy. He was the most, one of the most extraordinary men I've ever known. Hmm. His cross-cultural abilities, his brains, his creativity. I mean, he was just a remarkable guy. And so that, and, and of course, the, the geniuses in Oak Brook were distancing themselves because they thought it was going to be a failure. Right. And, but the international guys in McDonald's, there, there was a tiny, it was a tiny international department. It was made up of, of former franchisees who had sold back to McDonald's. So these guys were, you know, they knew what it was like to, to start up a store and run a store and solve all the problems, et cetera. And they were absolutely extraordinarily helpful. Hmm. Yes, and and, uh, and and we it was a bit of a shock to the to the guys in headquarters. For example, they didn't you know they didn't understand real estate in, in Hong Kong, and they didn't understand Asia at all. But they and they didn't know. Well, here we are in Hong Kong. They didn't understand real estate in Hong Kong. They were just 
tearing their hair out when we said we're building a 22-story building in order to have a 4,000 square feet of restaurant space on the ground and first floor. Mm. Well, that ended up being hugely profitable because we sold off each floor of the building and blah, 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 blah. So then they started started to listen and pay attention. When they, uh, when we, uh, when we were sort of getting into this thing, they had they had no no idea of a Chinese sweet tooth. You know, they say, "Oh, these guys will never eat uh, apple pies." Well, you know, they ate more apple pies in Hong Kong than anywhere else in the world. That's fascinating. And and then huh. when we when we opened the first store, it was a it was a cultural uh, a, a cultural event because when, the, when I don't know if you know Cantonese, but Cantonese aren't known for their uh, politeness <laughs> that's very well put <laughs> not and, and it isn't directed against you know, yeah. all of those foreigners it is the same way with each other sure so the first time we first store we opened and the and people walked up to the counter and the and the, and the cantonese person said good morning may i help you <laughs> that, that Whoa, was, what's wrong here yeah. this must be some that, sort that, of scam that, that caused the <laughs> sensation well needed to say McDonald's very quickly became <clears throat> McDonald's Hong Kong became, uh, I think it was fifth uh, most productive uh, territory in the whole McDonald's system, That's and true. and it was a great a uh, great great success. And I say primarily attributable to Daniel, even though we all take credit for part of it. But um, I think one seventh, <laughs> one seventh credit fair. Yeah, right. <laughs> for example. Um, you know, we had to set up a whole total logistics system. They didn't have any logistics to support. Oh, right. Yeah, to feed everything. a fast food restaurant. That's we, rapidly we to, complicated. We had to go uh, help the Chinese grow potatoes so we could get slowly, you know, get off the, having to have total support out of Australia. Right. Um, and then uh, once that was done, then we moved on to Singapore. And that was a huge, huge success. Hmm. And uh, I get some credit for that. And, uh, but the, again, the local guy was, uh, did a sensational job. And uh, yeah, and so after, after that, uh, we weren't allowed, to, uh, the guys in Oak Brook said, well, we really, we don't, <laughs> don't need you. We don't need you. Anymore. But <laughs> yeah. thanks so much for your time. We appreciate so, it. So then, so in, in Daniel had, you know, the guy in Hong Kong had slowly been easing across the border into China, Southern China doing some stuff. And then uh, Oak Brook or the headquarters got wind of that. And so they put a stop to that and they said, we'll take care of China. Well, you saw what happened, you know, what's happened. They don't even own, they don't even own McDonald's in China anymore. Nope. They screwed up so bad. And it's, you know, it's sort of typical. You talk about what have I observed in, in, in all these years in Asia, overseas and, and especially in Asia is, Head, the difference between the headquarters mentality and the field mentality, and that's not a revolutionary observation, but it's unbridgeable. Yeah, it's it really is. Observed. It's unbridgeable. Uh, starting with, uh, starting with uh, the overthrow at ZM, when all the when the local guys, including the chief of station, mm. would say, "Don't do this. It's not the right time. We can, we can, we can, we can do this coup anytime." But this is not the time because there's nobody, there's nobody to replace. Right. And guess what? They, you know, Lodge and Kennedy didn't have the guts to stop him. And all the geniuses in the National Security Council went along with it. And uh, <clears throat> what happened? We had five, five or six who's in the year after that. Because yeah. there wasn't anybody. Uh, then when we got one guy that the, China, that the Vietnamese could identify with, Key, he wasn't suitable to the Washington Post and New York Times because he was not polished. Right. And, uh, you know, so you, you see that and you see it uh, uh, in, in the corporate sector. Again, I just gave you this example of McDonald's. You know, they, those guys at headquarters, it's just, you know, we're at headquarters because we're smarter. If you guys in the field were, were so smart as we are, you'd be here. I mean, that's that's... Which is so insane because having been down this road, both sitting at a distance and being at the coal face, yeah, 
the next time I get the chance to sit in a in a leather chair and do nothing while others are the cold face, I'm going to send them thank you notes every Friday. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for being smarter than I am. Thank you for doing everything for me. You're the greatest ever. Do you right. want a fruit basket? Can I fly your yeah. wife somewhere? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's yeah. painful when someone from thousands of miles away doesn't understand yeah. the cultural context, gives you an order. I want to tear yeah. your hair out. Maddening. Yeah. That was the thing about uh, when I went when I took my steak from uh, from Hong Kong to go to Indonesia to the office park. It had never been done. Nothing had ever been done before. It was first. And there were no rules. There were no regulations. Right. I mean, that when I, when I, at one point I got a call and I went under a special, a special uh, law, regulation, whatever it was, to try to stimulate office. There were no offices in Indonesia, the fourth capital, the fourth, in Jakarta, fourth largest nation in the world. There, were no, there was one eight-story building. That was it. Fascinating. Nothing. Because these are all yeah. still very closely held family type businesses yeah, yeah. where decisions still made around the dinner table. Yeah. And uh, um, what was I born with this? Um, I don't know. Well, I'll come back to it. I remember. But um, the. Uh, hmm. I'm sorry. Did it take, I'm, I'm curious while you're thinking about it. Got so take, many thoughts I'm trying to get out. Yeah, no, no, but, but <laughs> that's interesting because you, you're setting up a new sort of working environment in a place that had never had it before. Was it a heavy marketing push? Oh, yeah. Did you able to understand know. this thing, this office uh, park? Or? So I was going to do this office park. And I, you know, I went through the proper uh, steps to do, you know, try to do it, but there was no precedence. So there was no whatever. And I came under this foreign investment board because um, it was a special foreign investment law. That's what it was. And I was first guy to do that. And uh, for the for, for trying to develop office space, because the companies were coming in to, to, for the offshore oil industry, and they were destroying the residential neighborhoods, creating right. They were tearing down buildings yeah. to build quick yeah. office space because they yeah. had to manage yeah. things. Yeah. Right. And um, so uh, I get a call from the guy who's in charge of, my project in the foreign investment board or whatever it was called. And uh, so I said, sure. He said, what's the status of your investment? And I said, well, let me show you. So I picked him up that following morning. I brought him out and was built. It was completely built. And That's occupied. great. <laughs> completely built and occupied. I had no permits, right. no nothing. Okay. Because how, how could you get one? There were none, right. So there was no it. procedure for getting one. So being a good Indonesian, being a good Indonesian, he smiled and, sh and shrugged and congratulated me. And of course, <laughs> That's excellent. Over, That's over, a good bureaucrat. <laughs> yeah. Over time, I you know I got all those the paperwork done properly right. as it was became possible to do it. But the thing that the thing that made just to give you the thing that made that successful was there were no telephones to speak of in the country at the time. No telephones. Of course, all these oil guys wanted you know, they had deaf communications. Right. So when I, um, when I um, decided to do this office park, fully backed by the guy I told you about who went to Hong Kong, who sent me to Hong Kong, um, there, uh, I said, well, we got to have some first thing I said is, look, nobody's ever met a commitment in Indonesia before. So don't don't bother me about getting this office space pre-leased. We're not going to try to lease one square foot of this until we got it, until the lights are on, the air conditioning is working, and we got telephones. Well, there were no telephones. Mm. So I find this Chinese guy who didn't speak any English, introduced to me by my local partner who was Chinese. And he took me to the head of the telephone company for this district. And uh, the guy said, look, I, you know, I got, I got numbers, but I don't have any lines. I said, so, okay, here's the deal. I'll get the lines right up here to your building. And you'll give me 100 numbers and 20 telex numbers. In other words, telex was the state of the art in those right. days. <laughs> and uh, he said, okay. And through this Chinese guy, I gave him, I've never forgiven. I gave him $50,000 to get started. He didn't speak a word English. I didn't speak any Chinese. And I, you know, I called a guy, I called 
open in Atlanta and said, well, you know, I just gave a guy $50,000. I think he knows what I want. I hope he does something. I drew a picture. (laughs) Okay. Well, he said, I hope so too. (laughs) Cause he was the kind of guy when he made, when he just, when he backed you, he didn't, he just everything he could to help. He didn't, he he didn't sharpshoot. Anyway. um, So to make a long story short, we there was a this was when Indonesia was just getting started. I was one of the first customers of Caterpillar. Caterpillar designed my power shed and put in the generators, training my people. Right. So that we never had an un, we never had uninterrupted power in that office park. Nice. Ten years or whatever I was associated with it. Um, and uh, this guy, um, there there was a company, a Hong Kong company called Cable some cable window or something. Anyway, they were just starting to build telephone cables. So I, I was one of their first customers and I bought six miles of telephone cable hmm. and laid it from the office park to the to the substation and the substation. Well, there are no, per, how do you do that? There are no permits. Nobody's ever done it before. So we just did it. Just did it. You know, haul, you drink it. Did it. <laughs> and we went, and in, in order to get it done, we had to go across the Air Force headquarters, right. which we did. They came, you know, they all they went to love that. <laughs> Air, Force, Air Force went to general quarters, came out and beat the hell out of our, our workers uh, and then kind of shrugged and we, we kept going. <laughs> I laid it right up. I said, okay, Mr. Director General, here's your, here's the, here's the game. Can I have my numbers? Yep. He gave me my numbers. And so I had one half of 1% of all the telephones in a fourth largest country in the world in my closet in the first <laughs> building that we built that's easily i deal with statistics on a daily basis that's easily one of the best statistics anyone's ever provided <laughs> <laughs> and and so i and, and also i wouldn't i could i didn't dare advertise that we wanted to open up for leasing because then every government official would come around and say oh don can i, have, I need a phone blah 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 right. you want to have to deal with that right uh, so I would go and knock on doors and say, I got this office park on Bill and I here. Come out and have a look at it. So uh, after a few months, I got a couple guys and then I got Fleur Corporation for half the first building that made it. And I pre-leased the next four buildings. That's nice. Because, and they would come in and say, well, let me, you know, what about telephones? And I said, yeah, you get one telephone. And there were modules. You get one telephone per for a module. Uh, and they said, yeah, that's what everybody says. I said, here, follow me. So I'd open the closet. There they were. I said, pick one. What color do you like? That's so, right. Uh, yeah, so that 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 was uh, that was a great uh, great deal. Our rents were in dollars and expenses were in local rupees. So they were always depreciating. I mean, it was, and I had, uh, you know, it was, and it was a park. I mean, I had beautiful landscaping and so right. forth. They were accustomed to just. So they built a little mini Palo Alto in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, it looked just like a co- something called Perimeter Office Park outside of Atlanta, Georgia. In oh, fact, right. In fact, I went to the guy at, at Perimeter Office Park and I said, "Boy, I really like this. I'd like to do this in Indonesia. Can I have a set of your plans?" And when he stopped laughing, he said, "He said, well, I guess we'll never go to Indonesia. Yeah, here you are. Like, yeah, you should go wild. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> Thank you for walking into my office with the best request all year. <laughs> That's good. So, oh. yeah. no, there was, it That's was. Uh, and so, what? Uh, you stayed in Indonesia for thirty years or so. Um, did you get back to live, live in the states now, or or what's your?" Yeah, well, I came back to live in the in the states, and yeah, and I started a business in New York. Uh, well, I came back from the came back to the states, and I was on a boy. I was really down. I'd gotten really whacked. Mm. Uh, the only only time in Southeast Asia that I couldn't recover from from was was Malaysia, mm. and we had to, some guys stole some money from us in Malaysia. We couldn't we couldn't admit that we couldn't solve the problem. The economy was going in the tank at that time because the oil industry was going into the tank. Right. It was just a, it was just a, it was just a convergence of bad uh, events. Bad events. And we believed in ourselves too much. Uh, 
that's always been a problem. My, my greatest strength is I never quit. My greatest weakness is I never quit. You know what? And you just got to accept how that goes yeah. because yeah. I, yeah, uh, you the same DNA, my friend. <laughs> no way. Got to charge your head. Well, what's, what's your kind of general thoughts? I think um, I, we, there are a billion things you worked on we could talk about, but for folks who are thinking about, you know, especially those who spent most of their time in one economy, whether it's the American economy or the British economy, you know, what if they're thinking, I hear that I can you know, make my fortune in frontier economies, whatever that means, right? Mm-hmm. What's your, and they're still available. There's still plenty of places on earth that oh. are still to be structured, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, you know, what are your major, major thoughts if someone's going to embark on this? Well, first of all, you've got to be, com- be comfortable with being alone. Yeah. Okay. you got to be comfortable with trying to get advice from anywhere, but keeping your own counsel. Mm. Uh, you have got to get into the culture. You can't, you can't skate above, you know, uh, away from the you know, above or away from the culture. You've got to get into it because that's the way you find out who the good guys are to deal with locally. Mm. And no matter how corrupt some of these countries are, and it's some are unbelievable, almost as bad as Washington D.C. No, no. Well, that's that's really a scurrilous attack on frontier markets. <laughs> <laughs> they 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 need time to develop that level yeah. of corruption. Yeah. <laughs> one is so you you you've got to be able to get into the culture in order to find out number one how to get things done, number two um, who the who the people are that you can trust and rely on. Because there there's always a, there's always a few. You just got to find them. And does that always require? kind of linguistic fluency in the culture and because yeah. you hopped around a lot you didn't learn malay and yeah. cantonese no, I, didn't, and no. I mean i learned indonesian very i was excellent in indonesian which means i could get along in malay but uh you know i no, i'm not i didn't never spoke any chinese spent all that time in china i've never and my french was never to is very elementary mm-hmm. and that was vietnam and all that time in the congo right well you can get along you can, you can, you can figure so it that, out. that cultural understanding that cultural acceptance can can be assisted by yeah. language skills, I mean, I, but it's not know, necessary. One of the first experiences, I, I'd really studied Indonesian. I was good at the time. And these were in the days before every Indonesian spoke English. Right. This is right at the beginning. And I remember I was monitoring this discussion we were having in Indonesia that was being had in Indonesian. I was understanding every word and thinking I was really how smart, congratulating myself on how smart I was. So when 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 the, when I thought it was the appropriate time, I interjected in perfect Indonesian, and these guys switched to Javanese just like that. Just like that. <laughs> <laughs> totally, yeah. So that was a good lesson. <laughs> That's really, yeah, it's best to keep your own counsel. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. That's great. And so that's a... Uh, but anyway, so, so back in the so you got to get, you got to, you got to find the culture's interesting, even as frustrating as they can be. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you've never if you've never experienced Africa time, you cannot appreciate that it's like no time at all. I mean, it's just time well, doesn't drive you out of your mind. Yeah, so. <laughs> Absolutely. And you gotta you gotta you gotta be able to deal with that, and you gotta be uh, in control. You can't you, you gotta be able to in control of your frustrations because you're certainly gonna have them. And uh, yeah, so, I'll, I'll share this with you. This may resonate. So having spent a lot of time in Southern Africa, I had my epiphany moment. I convinced every Western that lives in Africa for a while. First, it's charming and different and yay. And then it's frustrating, irritating, drives you nuts. And yeah. my moment came in Harare, where I was staying. And I had to get back to, to Cape Town. And I was going to fly. I'd come up on the train. And I went to the airport because I couldn't get anyone on the phone. I went, and this is before internet, really, at all. I went out to the airport. I said, when is the next flight to Cape Town? And the Air Zim represented looked me straight in the eye and said, Wednesday, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, great. Yeah. I went back to my hotel, ordered everyone a round of drinks. And like, when are you leaving? I said, Wednesday, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Wow. And once great, I understood that like, I couldn't one. get angry about the flight, yeah. the time, the day, yeah. everything was better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Wednesday, maybe. Okay, great. Yeah. That's funny. Mm. That's a lot of fun. So, well, Jim, thanks so much. Is there any sort of major last point you'd leave people with? I mean, that's you've had a fascinating career and spent a lot of it outside of the culture you were born in. And so that's kind of that big thing about 
immerse yourself in where you are and try to move with it, even if sometimes you don't love it. Anything else to really yeah, give people? Yeah, I think I think the uh, you know I I would just urge people to um, stop uh, judging everybody by our. I mean, accept accept other cultures as they are. Mm. We've just been through horrendous twenty years of trying to change people's culture and behavior oh. to make them conform to what we believe is is true. And while I firmly believe that what we believe is true, <laughs> doesn't also, matter. Firmly, it doesn't matter to these guys. That gotta, thirty billion dollars will get you nothing. <laughs> got to deal with them as they are. Right. And so it's important to understand why they are like they are. And uh, that's what we don't have. I find the American embassies in these countries are fortresses. You can't even get into them as American citizen. Crazy. How, are they, how are they gonna possibly understand what's going on in the- No, oh, they can't get out in the culture. They're supposed to, to be involved, so anyway. Yeah, oh, I remember I had to, I had to do something. I, was, I lived in Morocco for a long time. I forget why I had, oh, I think my passport was expired. So I had something that had to be done with the embassy. So I went to Rabat, and Embassy Row is lovely in Rabat. It's gorgeous. Morocco is beautiful. Right? These beautiful mansions. You could stroll up to the front gate, and they've given me an address. And things in Morocco aren't always linear. So, okay. And I'm, I'm Swiss Embassy, lovely reception. I spent time trying to hit on her until the guards shoot me out. Anyway, I was single at the time. And I'm going back and forth. And I can't find the American Embassy. And I keep walking by this massive 40-foot wall. And then I realized, oh, that's the embassy. Yeah. It's this massive block, this fortress, right? Yeah. Oh God, it was it was ridiculous. Everyone else literally had open doors, stroll up. It looked like a villa, and we were a fortress. When I first went overseas, and this was Indonesia, or not not counting Vietnam because that was military. Yeah. But when I first went over as a as a business guy, and walking in into a new country. It, it, you 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 made a courtesy call on the ambassador and you left your card in a, in a, in a tray, et cetera. And, you, you know, he would probably chat with you for a few minutes and so forth. So, right. so 55 years later, whatever it is, I'm, I'm walking and I'm, I'm in Yangon on a consulting gig in Burma. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go by the American embassy and see if they know anything. So I walked, to, I walked over. So I go over to the American Embassy, and it's, it's a fortress. I mean, it's just Jesus, barbed wire, and about everything. The fortress, and 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 the, and the guards on duty are locals. So I had, I show the guy my passport, and he said, "I'd like to, I'm American citizen. I'd like to go go into the embassy, please." Oh, do you have an appointment? I said, "No, I don't have an appointment because I don't know anybody, so I don't know who to make an appointment with." Right. But I'm an American citizen. Here's my passport. Right. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't go in. I said, <laughs> I said what? And he says, so he makes a call, and some American sort of guy comes out, and he interviews me in the guard shack. I don't even get invited in there. That's so awesome. Imagine what I said to him because I walked out the door. That's crazy. Uh, no, never tried again. So wow. <laughs> Anything about here's a good one in Brazzaville. I go to the embassy. After and I and, and you can't call them. You have to make a, you know you got to make an appointment on the internet. Right. I go in and I go through this elaborate security thing with locals. I get in. This guy comes. I go into this little room and this guy, this white guy, walks over to walks up to the plexiglass, very thick plexiglass <laughs> on a on over this counter with a thing under like you know you slide your. Whatever he, he says, uh, what can I do for him? I said, what, you mean you're not going to invite me in? And he said, he said, we don't serve coffee and cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Good, because I was looking for whiskey. <laughs> so I said to him the same thing I said to the guy in Yangon. I've never been to another embassy since. So. <laughs> That's so crazy. And you get that, that, yeah, the culture has decayed. I mean, the more distance you put yourself between the locals, I mean, it was, yeah, uh, you are forever. I dealt with the yeah. Saudi embassy or the American embassy in Saudi, and they were just as irritating. They all the compounds, all the expats don't speak a lick of Arabic, and they all, you know, never they eat burgers and just drink a Budweiser. It's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. terrifying. Yeah, anyway, but yeah. Jim, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. This oh, is fun. Really mm -hmm. interesting. Um, I love them. Yeah, a 
I'm, I'm envious of your time in the Congo. And if I could go back in time and have had a chance of taking a shot at Che Guevara, I think I'd trade a lot for that. So <laughs> I'm envious. What a prick. <laughs> but uh, so uh, thanks. Hey, thanks for the book. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. as, as more time goes by, other stuff you talk about, you publish that too. Um, and thanks for your thoughts. I, I love the fact you're at you. least one seventh responsible McDonald's <laughs> in Asia. That's brilliant. Yeah. Well, we then we did then we did IKEA after that, so that was good. Look at that. See, yeah. the trailblazer. You yeah. you made Asia and, better. And, and everyone said, "Oh, you'll they'll never be, the Asians will never go for things like woods, huh. and they'll never assemble it themselves." Right. All wrong. All, All wrong. wrong. Yeah. Uh, All talk wrong. about talk about cultural yeah. prejudice. They'll yeah. never do this. They don't exactly. do it now. Yeah. So we didn't either. <laughs> right? Ronald McDonald. Oh, they'll never go for Ronald McDonald. God, never. Sensations. He's scary looking. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Anyway. It's like a forest demon. Uh, that's priceless. Anyway, Jim, appreciate it. Thank Thanks you so much. Okay. Cheers. Be well. Bye-bye. Uh, <laughs> Learn what Bitcoin is, how it works, and why it matters. Bitcoin 101, your ultimate guide to the fundamentals of blockchain.